Follow the Path, the Bears Grove podcast, adult-level discussion of role-playing as a storytelling art at bearsgrove.com. Hi, and welcome to episode 44 of the Bears Grove podcast. My name is Sam Chupp. Podcast today will run 41 minutes, 37 seconds. Today on the program, we are interviewing Tao and Woodruff, but first I wanted to give you some news and notes. I had a lovely birthday on Friday, July 18th, and received a wonderful iPod gift from my partner Cynthia and my stepdaughter Katie, and I'm incredibly grateful. The iPod is making it so that I can see how most iPod people view my podcasts and what they look like when they come down to your object, and it helps me uh, sort of decide what to put on there and Furthermore, I'm really listening to a lot more uh, varied podcasts because I don't have to sort of manually process all the podcasts that are coming down. And my old MP3 player was very fairly small. It's like a half a gig. So this one is a little bigger than that, a lot bigger than that. So that's a good thing. Um, but I mean, I'm just pleased as punch about this particular gift from my family, and I really appreciate it. Um, so I hope you all had a wonderful, uh, Sam Tide, uh, on July 18th. So real quick, I wanted to say that there's also some things that I'm working on and that one of them is a steampunk short story. And then I'm working on a, uh, game called Silken, which is a, a Lyrica variant. And I'm going to be, uh, finishing up with Heart of the Hunter and once I'm done with that, I can actually free myself up to do a lot more projects, and I'm really looking forward to do, doing that. Um, this year, I'm going to be at the uh, podcast track at Dragon Con. I don't know if I'll be able to run any games uh, this year, because I still haven't got my schedule yet, so um, I'm basically kind of up in the air, and I would really love to schedule a game or two, but... You know, I also discovered that some of my favorite story games people have had to cancel because of finances or and the distance and stuff. So I'm I'm really kind of disconcerted. Um, but I'll I'll we'll we'll find some way to game at DragonCon. DragonCon has to have some story games. That's all, just all it is to it. We have to do something. Um, but we'll figure it out. But for now, I'm having to plan my whole con around the podcast track, so that's where I'll be. Um, and I'm really excited about that. I, I really do look forward to working with pod tra- the pod track, as we call it, the pod track. Um, and hopefully, we'll get to see some of my friends who are gamers and podcasters there at the con. Okay. Uh, so, without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Tailwind Woodruff. Tailwind... Uh, worked for White Wolf back when I was working for them and did a lot of freelance writing. We worked together with uh, each other on Wraith, the Oblivion. Uh, and as such, we have formed, you know, lasting bonds because, of course, that was a very harrowing experience. And uh, and, and that's not really meant to be a pun. But anyway, um, so uh, furthermore... Tailwind has done a, a lot of work. I mean, she's basically, she's been there at Watsi during all of the big moves. Uh, she's worked for every major gaming company. Uh, I'm going to provide a link in the in the show notes for her as all of her like 
credits and everything. Uh, she's a female game designer. She wrote Gypsies. That's why I wanted her to be on the program. So without further ado, let me give you that interview that I recorded over Skype. Now, please forgive the sound quality in some cases. Uh, it's the best I can make it, and hopefully you'll love it. Thanks so much. It's that time of year again. Goblin season? Demon season. <sighs> no. It's convention season. And with it, all the industry awards are being announced. So? Well, the Wandering Geek Podcast has been nominated for an Emmy in the Best Fan Product category. You're kidding. I'm shocked. Shocked, I tell huh. you. Go figure. But getting on the ballot is only the first step. A frontal assault with killer robots. No, no, nothing so drastic. Killjoy. We just need to get the folks out there listening right now to go to www.anyawards.com between July 21st, 2008, and August 3rd and cast their vote. We will have a link on the Wandering Geek main page starting July 21st to make voting easier. Head over to wanderinggeek.info to check out the show's audio downloads, RSS feeds, and other geeky stuff. And please, help us bring that statue home. Thanks. Welcome, Talon. Oh, thank you, Sam. Well, I'm I'm glad to have you. You know, when I when I finally got a hold of you through Facebook, I was like, "Wow, that's so cool!" Because you know, it's one of those things where you work with someone on a little on a daily basis for a while, or on a on a weekly basis, you go through literal creative hell with them in <laughs> in terms of wraith, which was mm-hmm. an experience. You know, yeah, yeah uh, that was an experience. <laughs> yes. And uh, then, you know, and you see, I I got a chance to see you a couple times at Gen Con. And then pretty much once I left the industry, um, it was like, you know, so, I mean, I still want to get back with uh, Wolf and, you know, and and some of our drinking buddies from Gen Con. But uh, I can, yeah, I can uh, get you Wolf's info if you have. Oh, I know. Yeah, I know where he is. I just don't know if he has dime. (laughs) He's he's, a busy guy. He is. He's, I mean, that's like, yeah, that's an understatement. Well, so are you. You're a very busy uh-huh. woman. Um, uh-huh. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit uh, in a minute about some of the books you did for White Wolf, including uh, the Gypsies book, because we had some discussion about that earlier in the podcast. But um, first of all, I just wanted to say, you know, you are one of the pioneer women in the industry, and I wonder if you had uh, observations as to female game designers and, you know, where we're at now, where we were at then, and how far we've come since then. Okay, yeah, well, you're right that uh, I remember uh, actually back when I was doing things for White Wolf that uh, um, I was at a party and uh, someone was going, "Oh, what do you do to one of the, you know, for, to the guys? There are five of us, and um, what do you do? What do you do to all the guys? What do you do for White Wolf? What do you do for White Wolf?" And they pass over me. What do you do for White Wolf? What do you do? For... <laughs> oh, just, just assuming, you know, I, I was just there, someone's date, I guess. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> so. Yeah. And the, there's some of your other project in the background, I hear. That's right. That's that's. Two of my two boys, my daughter is being quiet right now. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, things. Uh, it's 
you know, there's still uh, at that time there was I was the first woman who had written actually written things for White Wolf Games, and I was the first uh, female game designer hi, designer hired at um, Wizards of the Coast in '95. Um, during the course of the time, uh, the ten years I worked at Wizards of the Coast, I think we had I had at most one other female game designer or developer in the department out of thirty or forty guys. Wow. It went from either one being me or to two sometimes, and then back to one. <laughs> and there were none when I left. Um, so I wouldn't say necessarily that there's been a huge progress, but I would say there are a few more women. Like I do see um, some women doing some board games and doing a few other role-playing games and some trading card game action, but it's still a very male-dominated field, and I haven't seen a strong change that way. Um, in the field, which is too bad because I think women play a lot of games. And the one area that I'm hoping that will really provide more opportunities for women to for women to uh, become game designers is in uh, the huge explosion in casual and social games, uh, especially in online games, mm-hmm. because uh, those games are played predominantly by females, and it's a huge monetary segment. Um, for uh, game companies nowadays, and it's exploding. In fact, applications like Facebook, where there's a number of um, sort of word games, casual games, quick play games online. Are you talking um, about games like Scrabulous, or are you talking about everything from uh, JoJo's Fashion Show, Bookworm? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of small casual play games that uh, women play a lot online. So mm-hmm. I'm rather hoping that that will lead to more women designing those games too. Yes, that would be wonderful. Um, I know that there are some indie games out there that are um, indie game designers. Like I, I um, attended a talk from Julia Bon Ellingbo, um, who wrote a game called Steelway Jordan, um, uh-huh. and she's you know sort of coming at that the same direction of, of sort of being uh, sort of groundbreaking even now. Um, and it's a, it's just that uh, the game industry is heavily male dominated, and it mm-hmm. needs to be a little more open minded. I think I think the big companies need to be continue to make the effort to um, attract the kind of talent that it exists but isn't really being recognized. I agree. I also think that sometimes they have trouble um, listening to ideas that might attract more females as you know appropriate areas to explore. Um, because they're like, well, I don't know if I would like it. And once, when you get in a mindset, when you're in a field where you're pretty much the target consumer, um, which is true when you have a bunch of 20s and 30-somethings, white males uh, designing games, they're, they're used to being sort of designing for themselves. That's, mm-hmm. you know, that's the way they approach it because most of the consumers that their game will reach are similar to themselves. And so if you try to come with an idea that's designed for, say, older women or young girls or any sort of female audience, so they're like, huh, I don't know if I would like that. It's like, aha, but that's the point. And learning how to evaluate that when you're used to being in that sort of very comfortable, I'm designing for myself frame can be tricky. I can see that. Um, at the same time, you know, uh, there's a lot of talk about this untapped market, of, which is uh, women gamers. And I know that um, when we're talking, when I'm talking to my friends about game design, uh, and the topic comes up, you know, what can we do to get more gamer- women gamers to play? Well, really, it's not. There's no like magic formula. 
it's it's basically make better games. I mean, when it comes up, make you know, make games that actually engage like all kinds of conflict and story and and all kinds of imagination and don't put things in a box and and you know really design a game that is really solid in terms of engaging the uh, the players and it will become attractive to women. Um, I, I think that there's kind of a there's kind of a Zen thing where you have to sort of think, well, let's think about this. You know, how can we get more women? But at the same time, how can we design a decent game? And they should be, they shouldn't be mutually exclusive. No, they shouldn't be mutually exclusive. Sometimes you have to think about though, like, for example, some people say, well, women are competitive. They don't like games. That's not true. Women are competitive. Um, I think overall, and obviously this, you know, any of these things, we're talking generalities. Mm-hmm. Um, in my observations, I've, and like to eight bazillion focus groups with boys, girls, men, women. In my observation, women are very competitive, but a lot of times the boys and men we see, um, they want to beat someone. That's like their version of competitive. So if you sit them down, they're playing a trading card game. This isn't all men, of course, but you know, they're, they're, there's a goal there that I will beat you and I will win. I will win by defeating you. And then women, a lot of times, what I've seen is a goal that they find more appealing is that I will win by triumphing. I will win by being better. But that doesn't necessarily mean that their opponents did poorly. So, like, Clue does a good job with that. If you know the game Clue, we're all trying to solve mm-hmm. a mystery together. Um, Clue is the kind of game where, like, if I win, I could turn to you, Sam, and you're playing, and I can go, oh, I won, but, and that's great. Sam, you did really well. You almost solved that mystery. You know, you were close. I just did a little better, as opposed to saying, I must crush you. I have to rip Sam's cards up before, you know, I win. Uh, so it's sort of a different right. way of competing. <laughs> that, okay, yeah, and that's very, uh, that maps really well to the story games concepts I've been listening and reading about um, of late, where participatory um, storytelling takes place at the table in a structured way that is supported by mechanics and, um, mm-hmm. you know, at the narrative power goes back and forth between the players and the, uh, the, the nominal GM, um, or sometimes okay. there's not even a GM. I mean, the, the GM duties get distributed in different directions. So, yeah, they're sort of like guiding a story, and I think mm-hmm. I've always been surprised that there were not as many. I guess it's because it comes out of wargaming, but I've I always thought if you look at the play style of storytelling games, if you look at the play style of role playing games, it seems very oriented toward the way girls and women play games. I've always been surprised that more women haven't gotten involved with them because of that. Yeah, I think a lot of that is marketing, and also. Um, you know, the whole protectionist boys only kind of thing that a lot of gamers have. But, um, and, and certainly I've done my part. I've, I've raised two girl gamers. So <laughs> I put them out there. Um, and they're helping already to get more girl gamers involved because wherever they go, they game with women, um, young women, and they continue to go forward. So that, that just tickles me pink when I hear about it. Yeah, um, uh, anyway, okay. Well, I, uh, I I want to talk to you a little bit about gypsies, and I know that this is, was 1994. Yeah, this is a while ago. <laughs> so it's a long time ago. But I also got the impression at the time that this was a book that you really felt po- powerfully about. Yes, I did. And I would like for you to just give us an idea of, 
you know, what led you to go to bat for the gypsies and, um, and also to talk about them and, and give a, just a little bit of sort of designer's notes for us. If you, I mean, not designer's notes, I know you don't have them with you, but just from your perspective in retrospect, what, what did it mean to you? And Well, I like the concept of doing um, a book about gypsies, uh, I think for a few reasons. One is that they were sort of a marginalized culture um, and had been for a long time uh, in Europe. And they they were one that with a lot of mystery and power, but they'd also been abused and persecuted. Uh, gypsies were one of the targets of Adolf Hitler, for example. And they've continued to this day to be a fairly marginalized uh, in all sorts of cultures, mostly in Europe. Uh, and so that, that sort of interested me to take an ancient culture that people don't have maybe some of the respect they should have for it because it's very different than um, most of the established cultures in the Western world and look at them sort of from their perspective, like try, try to, as much as I could, take the role of um, someone in that marginalized culture. It's also one that I thought could be very empowering with the females in the culture. And they have, I don't know, sort of a, some really beautiful um, myths, legends, and sort of just a sort of ethos way of life that I thought was really compelling and interesting and could be used in the world of darkness in a interesting way to add something new. Mm-hmm. Do you, what, at what point do you feel like, and we had a discussion about this on the podcast, um, mm-hmm. at what point is having uh, a thing like Gypsies mm-hmm. in your game world, at what point of it does it become... Uh, uh, cultural appropriation, basically, and uh, at what point is it more empowerment? So, like, where does that line drawn? Well, I mean, I think whenever you're dealing with something that is in the real world and you're, you know, stealing it in essence, it's not. I mean, when we play Gypsies Are the Rom in the World of Darkness, they're not the same as the people who live in our real world. Just like, you know, the people in New York City, and they're not the same as the people in the real New York City. Um, but I think I think you need to treat, especially when you're dealing with a marginalized culture, someone who's who's not um, one you know on top. Uh, you need to treat them with respect, and if you sort of use them as sort of bad guys all the time, or you know somehow or good guys all the time, but if you just sort of pigeonhole them in one thing where they have to be the bad guys or they have to be the good guys, and they they're just that sort of simplistic sketch drawing of people, then I think you get in danger of uh, marginalizing them further and, you know, using them as boogeymen. But if you could try to approach them as more of a, you know, real people, more of a mixed balance, they're good, they're bad, they're people, they just have their own perspective, then I think, you know, you're you're treating them with respect and that's okay. That's how I do it. Mm-hmm. There, uh, there really was, I think, uh, in the world of darkness, before you wrote Gypsies, sort of a throwaway, you know, reference to them. Yeah. Um, the Ravnos were sort of, you know, involved with them, mm-hmm. and I think you had a. There was a kind of. Um, there were. There could have been. You could have just gone with the whole idea of okay, they're just sort of like Ravnos, you know. But you really took the culture and the mythology. Um, and really tried to bring out all the aspects that you could and create sort of a, 
almost like a, I don't, I don't want to say realistic, but at least logical and internally consistent uh, framework. Yeah, so I, I did. I actually did a fair amount of research um, on uh, the, the, the different people because the ROM are not just one people, right? There's, there's actually a number of different uh, lines and different cultures, and so you can't in one role-playing book put all of that in, but you could try to get as much as you can the essence of a society that is so much different, that does move around, that has a very, it's very, you know, very, it keeps to itself, and try to respect that and make that more than just this, oh yeah, they're, they're Ravnos, they're kind of bad and shifty and whatever. That, I think, would be disrespectful. Mm-hmm. Have you had any um, ROM gamers uh, approach you at any point? I haven't. I'd be really interested to see what uh, what they thought, but I haven't. Okay. Um, and that leads me into my next question, which is, what is your gaming life like now, if any? <laughs> <laughs> well, I do have uh, three three children under the age of five, which... Uh, limits uh, my gaming with other adults somewhat, but I do actually I do a lot of playtesting of games that I design um, or my partner designs at our game company, and um, we play we play uh, family games like um, you may not think of this as a family game, but we'll play like Guild Wars um, because my five year old, my almost five year old, and my three year old can play too online. <laughs> we make. Yeah, I know. We uh, make up games a lot. We do a lot of sort of make up games, like, like elaborate treasure hunts and sort of, you know, how to fighting the bad guys in various ways. Um, and so there's a lot of that kind of gaming. Sort of in, a, in a, some ways, I've gone back to the kind of games I used to make up all the time when I was a child because I did that. I just made up games continuously and uh that's it's sort of it's really interesting it's it's like coming full circle in a way so i also do some uh, like i do casual games online when i get the time and because that's because you can play those in very bite-sized chunks which is about the only way i can play a game by myself these days <laughs> right because that's you know when you're going to have time and mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense yeah, well, it's interesting yeah, I mean, kids surprise you uh, as you're, you know, running a freeform kind of role-playing, make-believe, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. They really do surprise you, and it causes it caused me when I was gaming with my little ones when they were little um, to completely re, like, you know, design the way I kind of approach games. And I think that, you know, that's what happens with game designers have children, you know, they, they, they realize, they recapture some of that magic. Um, of yeah, the, I, I agree totally. And it's, it's interesting. I actually have some toy designs now and that's probably because of my kids because they kind of think about what they might like and, you know, things to do with them. Um, they also make up their own games, which is very refreshing. Um, we have dogs, uh, pugs, and my three-year-old is running around and playing a game which involves capturing pugs with blankets and, one of them kept getting away and getting away and getting away, and he turned to his brother and uh, and said, "Griffin, this level's too hard for me." So <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I'm like, "Oh, my boys are gamers." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, can you tell me a little bit what it's been like uh, being part of the Wizards of the Coast success story um, and mm-hmm. and doing all the I mean, you've been a freelancer who 
whose work has sort of underpinned you know game development throughout many different cult, uh, companies, not just White Wolf, but yeah. you, know, mm-hmm. you work for Fossa and you work for TSR and you work for yeah. Western Games. So, right. where's the? I mean, give us some wisdom here, Tailwind. Where is the industry going? I mean, fourth edition is coming out. Can you give us any hints? Oh, fourth edition. Um, hmm, any hints? Uh, well, you know, I mean, I hear things. I'm not a witness anymore, but I do hear things. Uh, I know that there's been there are. I will say that I know there are strong opinions on several different sides about what exactly fourth edition should be. So people care passionately about it, and not everyone agrees. So there's a, it's still some going. It's very interesting. There's been some going back and forth about what it should be. Uh, it's always that way, though. I think whenever there's a change um, about people, whether they think there should be a change, shouldn't be a change, what the change should be. Um, and we don't always know the right answer. We can, we make our best guesses, um, and that's been true pretty much my entire uh, time career. I spent about ten years at Wizards of the Coast, so I worked on during that time. I worked on almost every game Wizards of the Coast put out. So, from BattleTech to Netrunner to Magic the Gathering to D and D to all sorts of different things. Yeah, and you were there to uh, guide the development, or at least participate in that, and. Um, it's amazing to me that, um, I mean, it just, here's a person who clearly has had her hand, you know, involved with a lot of things. So I just wondered if you had any like insights or anything or, or stories you wanted to tell, um, about Uh, your time there. What was the niftiest thing that happened to you at Wizards? Niftiest thing? Uh, there's a few different things. Um, it depends on what you think of as niftiest. Um, there was int- like early in the in the Wizards of the Coast days. It was sort of fun because it was still a very new, growing company. Um, there were a lot of people who were very excited about working there and didn't know what was going to happen. And we would do crazy things. We we would um, we moved into them. When we moved into our new building. It was about half empty. It was one of those where there was four buildings connected by sort of hamster trails, and the whole top level was pretty much empty for about a year. And so we would do just all sorts of crazy things. We'd have huge chair races through the through the corridors and pods and, you know, people sitting on chairs pushing each other and crazy stuff. We had a, we stopped the whole company for a day, surprise, for uh, an Alice in Wonderland day that me and some other people designed where we (laughs) dressed up uh, the head of Magic uh, the Gathering as a white rabbit and we had... Uh, we had flamingo croquet, and we had puzzles, and we had a little prize for every single person in the company. And there was just a lot of sort of crazy, spontaneous events, which were a lot of fun um, back in the early days, which was cool. Uh, game-wise, one of the most interesting just sort of things that we didn't expect was Pokemon. Um, we were working on Pokemon very early, and we were very leery about whether or not this game with these bizarre little creatures would be a success. Um, in America, and we remember going, I remember going, and they told us what the first uh, print run would be, and we're all like, oh, that's not good. They're going to flood the market. That's just going to be terrible. And, like, two days later, they came back and said, yeah, well, all sold out. We're doubling the print run, and we're all like, oh, yeah, that's going to be terrible. They're going to flood the market. And this went on, I'd say, for about, you know, three months, where, where every other week they'd say, well, they're all gone. We're doubling the print run. And uh, we were wrong. <laughs> it, it it did okay. <laughs> yeah, okay is a bit of an understatement. Yes, I will say that I love Pikachu because that little yellow rat paid for the down payment on my house. 
Yay. Yay, Pikachu. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, know, just, you, know, you know, Wizards of the Coast has a very, this, the design department of Wizards of the Coast is very male-oriented, getting back to that, but uh, it's a very uh, sort of feisty, you know, sort of argumentative kind of place where there's a lot of, like, back and forth, and you have to be willing to sort of fight for your point, but do it, try to do it in a way that's appropriate so that you can all listen to each other. And that was always a balancing act. Um, and I always found it a balancing act for me, since it was not my natural preferred style of interaction, I would say. Yeah, God, that doesn't sound familiar at all. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, wow, that sounds exactly like White Wolf um, in the back, background. All the people, yeah. you know, cracking on each other and you know, you had to completely defend any position you had, and things would go to ad hominem attacks all the time. And, uh, you know, it gets that way, but that's that was the creative, um, sort of a feisty creative atmosphere. And yeah, Well, I think when people care, like, about these things that they're creating and their names are going to go on, that they, you know, they care, and that can lead to feisty interactions, <laughs> especially in a larger group. Indeed. Well, have you ever thought about, um, you know, are we are we going to ever see you return to role playing, or is this a, I mean, your current your current company? What does you seem to have a, a an amalgam of different projects? So if you could talk about that for a little while. Sure. Um, yeah, I work. Uh, my company is called Lone Shark Games, L-O-N-E, Lone Shark, and uh, it's two of us right now. Although James Ernest, that's me, Mike Selinker. Um, Mike Selinker has worked on a million different projects, including D and D uh, and 3.5 and other things your uh, your listeners may know of. Uh, he also headed the uh, Avalon Hill line for a while at Wizards of the Coast. Uh, James Ernest has sometimes was the founder of Lone Shark and sometimes involved the company. He also does cheap ass games. Um, hmm. And uh, so he's also involved sometimes. Lone Shark uh, pretty much are sort of we're very uh, we're creatives. We do we do board games, we do card games, we do collectible games. We have a collectible marble game uh, debuting at Gamma called Warball. We have wow. Uh, two, yep, yep, it's with marbles and trading cards, and we have a uh, we have a. Uh, Let's see, two card games and a board game as well um, coming out there. And we do also puzzles. We do a lot of puzzles. Um, we do puzzles for Games Magazine. We do crazy giant scale puzzle events. Sometimes we do them at Gen Con. We do the, a huge puzzle event uh, every year at the Microsoft Company Picnic. And that might not sound big, but the Microsoft Company Picnic takes place over three days and has over 100,000 people at it. Oh, yeah, I'm um, sure that's not a small thing. So it's actually quite a huge event, and we build giant scale uh, puzzles and events, you know, like flowers 10 feet tall that have a puzzle in them, that sort of thing. Um, we do also do events for uh, the Penny Arcade Expo, PAX. I don't know if you're familiar with Penny oh, Arcade. Oh, yeah, but, PAX. Mm, yeah. PAX, yeah. Yeah, so we do... Um, we actually do all their parties, and we do special scale events. Like last year, we did a huge event for um, Uncharted, Drake's Fortune, which is a Sony PlayStation game. And it, uh, we had people climbing giant walk, rock walls to solve puzzles and shooting airsoft rifles and all sorts of crazy things. So we do large scale. But we also do some things like role-playing uh, games. Uh, we did a role-playing game supplement uh, for D&D. Um, called Harrow, uh, which is a new, actually, speaking of gypsies, a new um, tarot-style deck 
for using the Dungeons and Dragons from Paizo Press that came out a few months ago. Oh, nifty! I, uh, say that again. What is it? What's it called? It's called Harrow, H-A-R-R-O-W, mm-hmm. and it's uh, basically a tarot deck style product um, to be used with fantasy games, in particular Dungeons and Dragons. And there's a couple of different ways you can use it. Also, can be used in a gambling game that we made up, um, and it can be used to sort of do these sort of fortune telling for your adventurers. And we give ways of doing that. And it's a product that's out now. It came out a few months ago from Paizo Press. So that's a role playing. Uh, linked uh, product we've done recently. Oh, awesome! That does sound really cool. I, I, it's uh, shades of the first scenes of the Ravenloft module. <laughs> yes, yeah, it is. It was fun to do. It was fun to uh, create. I actually uh, designed that um, the month after my daughter was born last year, and it was it was interesting <laughs> to uh, to do to come up with all the meanings of the different cards, and because it's not you know it's not a real tarot deck. It's a, a totally new tarot deck that's designed for uh, role playing games, and it, it's fun. It's fun to use too. Yeah, that that does sound like it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, you have been involved a couple of times with some seriously intense subjects, and in the past, um, you like you were part of the um, uh, Giovanni Chronicles, uh, mm-hmm. the Last Supper, um, and other sort of things. You know, give me an idea of how you know how how does that fit right now in your, I mean, you, you, you seem like you may have left kind of the horror stuff behind. Is, do you have any sort of want to return to that zone, or is it, is it, are you done with it? Uh, I would not say I'm done. I like, I like horror. I think horror is an interesting subject. I think, you know, exploring some of the darker sides of our nature is always, I don't know, I think it's a good thing to do. I think it's, it's always good to sort of look at what might be lurking within us. Um... I have a, it's a young adult book series, but it's a book series that I've, I'm hoping to get out that uh, does, in fact, deal with some scarier subjects. Uh, so, and that has, it's sort of a, I don't know how to describe it. I don't want to give away too many details, but it's right, really right. involved horror. Oh, awesome. So we're going to uh, have to have you back on when you get there so that we can talk a little bit about your new book when it comes yeah. out. That'll be awesome. That'll be awesome. Well, you know, yeah. podcasting does get out there, and it'll, you might be surprised at the number of people who uh, mention it to you. Um, but at any rate, um, okay. Well, uh, anything else you'd like to say to our my fans or the the listeners here? Because your your fans, really, because that, that's what people are going to be t- tuning in. Oh, it's just that I really like uh, hearing from people who like things that I've done, and I like getting feedback because it's interesting. Um, I also, you can check out, in a totally different vein, I do um, writing for reality TV online, so, <laughs> so that's another area that I, uh, that I write on. So if anyone wants to check out reality news online, uh, I write some articles there and edit there. Um, I like gaming. I like seeing... So I like the social aspects of gaming, the social interaction, which is probably mm-hmm. why I like some of the reality shows as well. And uh, I like, you know, next time, I'm not going to be at a convention soon, but I'll be at some next year. So I'm hoping to see some people I know come say hi. 
Yeah, I know it is with when you have kids and you don't have a small squadron of child care experts uh, to help you. It, uh, yeah, Orange has asked me to be the uh, guest of honor there this year, and I had to say, yeah, I don't think I could do it this year, but I told them I'd probably be able to do it next year. So Awesome. Well, you definitely deserve it. Thank you. Uh, okay. Well, um, thanks so much for having uh, the time to sit down with me, and I really appreciate it. And this is the sort of thing where, um, by the way, I mean, you know, have you ever considered doing a podcast yourself? You know, there is a tremendous, I mean, this is something that you could fit in uh, between the uh, other things from time to time, but there's a tremendous audience out there uh, waiting for material, and I think you might have an excellent perspective. And so just want to put that in your ear, because I do that with everybody. Well, I'll think about it. <laughs> if you need help, let me know. I'll be glad to help you. It's not that hard. Okay, well, that's good to know, because, uh, yeah, I don't know too much about it. So. Well, but, yeah, I, you never know. So, yeah, I hope you, hopefully this will get you listening to some of our podcasts. At any rate, um, Tailwind, thanks so much for uh, coming on, and we'll talk to you again soon. All right, thanks for having me, Sam. Well, you've come to the end of another Bears Grove podcast. This podcast is released to you under a Creative Commons license. Attribution, no derivatives, no commercial use, 2.5. Thanks for listening, and have sweet dreams when you get them. The closing music tonight is from Anne Heaton, a song called Where Your Scar Is. If you don't like pretty voiced pop songs, uh, then you might want to just go ahead and hit skip. But I really love this music, and I asked Anne for my permission to play it, and she granted it. So, by permission, here is... Where Your Scar Is by Ann Heaton at annheaton.com.